Hi everybody, this is B and Emily and John and welcome to the Always Already podcast and uh, you know it's been a while since my nasally voice has been recorded uh, herein and I'm really excited to be back and talking about a really awesome book. Hi everyone. Hi. Hey. Hi B. Hi Emily. Hi. Every time somebody says it's been a while I hear stain. Um, <laughs> 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 We're like less than a minute in and we are off the rails. A stain reference on the Always Only podcast. Uh, it's been uh, a while since there's been any podcasting. Yeah. I it's been it's been kinda hectic. Um yes, and well, you're now Dr. B, so that's I a am, big deal. I know, Dr. B. Uh, it's kinda strange to even say and feel that, think it. To be an inhabitant. <laughs> to be Doctor B. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been it's been an interesting like year. I mean, it's been about a year or so yeah. since last we got together and discussed, you know, such topics as phenomenology, etc. Oh, too long. Too long. It's always too, too long. long. Too long. From the last time one has talked phenomenology, Emily, what are we what are we specifically but, talking about today? Oh, today we read some excerpts from a lovely book called In Between, Latina Feminist Phenomenology, Multiplicity, and the Self by Mariana Ortega. And we read... Which was... The... Oh, yeah. We the read introduction. The introduction. Go for it. Um, chapter three, The Phenomenology of World Traveling, and chapter seven, Home Tactics. And the afterword. And the afterword, afterward. yes. And he's read the whole book. Is that correct? Yes. Because they are a wonderful person. <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> multiplicitous self, as we will find out. Indeed. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, B, maybe we can get started. You're the one that suggested this book. I think this book yeah. um, has like a number of resonances for you in your own work and potentially like your own multiplicitous selfhood too. So maybe like we can start by having you kind of like map out the resonance and meaning of this book. <clears throat> Well, right. So, um, you know, my work has uh, taken an affective turn, as one might say, um, but also because I'm, you know, how excited uh, I know <laughs> because mine, uh, mine has, has turned away from affect. So, but yeah, it's it's been a it's been kind of like a love hate feeling relationship with affect. But in uh, you know, Linda Martin Alcoff was the one who brought this book to my attention, especially since. Um, I sort of recently did a kind of a 180 on my feelings about Heidegger and phenomenology. Um, but it appealed to me on a number of levels. One, um, a conversation about the multiplicity self and narratives of transition for um, trans communities um, in, you know, multiple senses of what transition means. Um, the idea mm -hmm. of there being a whole self um, behind the scene of the narrative of transition versus multiplicitous selves, which I think, um, you know, one critique, one potential critique um, of the book um, or of the way that we can um, discuss multiplicitousness um, would be how in many accounts of providing a sense of self, you know, to what extent, these are the research questions that I had, you know, 
when I was reading the, the text for the first time? Uh, in what sense do um, trans narratives, especially or transition related narratives, um, push against multiplicitousness? Um, to what extent is there a kind of um, privileging um, or cis normative privileging, perhaps, um, of the sense that, uh, you know, body in the way that it feels um, is, uh, you know, needs to be conjoined over time versus um, it's being split? I mean, these are, of course, inchoate questions that I'm still dealing with. It's not as if I've worked them out 100%. Um, and so, you know, turning to this book, it was uh, also a means of finding a way in social theory, philosophy, and political science, um, my own entry point uh, from the standpoint of, um, of being trans and understanding and working out a newer sense of trans masculinity uh, and specifically how home tactics and being in worlds and world traveling uh, facilitated that. And so it ended up being um, heavily incorporated into my own dissertation um, and then um, subsequent articles that I'm like, I'm trying to um, get published, but you know, that's kind of where Ortega started to fit into the picture. Plus I'm a huge fan of Gloria Anzalua and the fact that she was able to take Anzalua in a social theoretical space and make it very explicitly philosophical, which we know can be, or, you know, by we, um, can be pretty disciplinary. And it, she's already explained this to us, uh, how to make a space that is highly disciplinary into something intersectional um, and much more open. So that's, you know, those are the, you know, the main reasons why I selected the book for discussion um, and how it ended up being a kind of, um, in its own way, a way of writing a practice, a reparative practice in one sense, um, to, to, to rediscover myself in my own work. Mm. Yeah. And that's not being solipsistic or, or anything. It's actually finding how my narrative matters uh, to the very work that I do in both philosophy and political theory, uh, which, you know, in so many ways we're trained in, as academics to distance ourselves um, even in political theory, <laughs> uh, and, or and especially in, in especially, in, especially in philosophy for that matter, as she's pointing out and that feminist philosophies and specifically in Latina feminist, um, phenomenologies, there has to be this recuperation of the personal narrative as a space in which philosophy and theory are taking place. So streetwise theorizing, et cetera, um, home tactics, the use of the senses, what good are, you know, in one sense, what good are the, is the study of bodies if we can't access our own um, within the scope of analyzing the worlds we inhabit? And those are the kinds of things that were, um, you know, most immediately presented when I started reading this text. And the questions that I had already started asking myself as to how to begin an investigation of my own communities uh, if I can't work out for myself within these texts that I'm writing and reading a conception of who I am. So if that made any sense whatsoever, it was a way that Ortega um, spoke to me um, and was allowing me in some instance, strangely enough, allowing me as a room to write myself as I'm writing um, others. So, Yeah. 
Um, I so I, I suppose like maybe if starting out with a, a kind of a larger question from that um, is and and you know this is just from the introduction and maybe we can just get this out of the way because the interventions that Ortega is making um, are specifically in recuperating Heideggerian phenomenology into a realm that um, seems to be. Uh, from the way that she would describe it, and I think justifiably leery of using someone like Heidegger um, to talk about feminism um, and to talk about especially intersectional feminisms um, because of his political uh, background and his, as Jose Munoz Munoz once said, um, his abject political failure. Mm. Um, (laughs) But not not a queer failure, not a good kind of failure. No, not a queer failure indeed. Um, but that, you know, she was able to make a, you know, to resituate Heidegger in really productive ways that I think um, were in, like, I, I felt like the appeal that she was making to a Heideggerian phenomenology, not to Heidegger as such, um, was brilliant um, and a way to rethink um, what Heidegger was doing in terms of mood, affect and states of being. Um, and I really appreciate Ortega's perspective a lot more than just being in the world. Her perspectives on being in worlds and being between worlds, I think, had a much more, uh, you know, if it's in one sense existential, but also in another sense kind of ontologically um, uh, encouraging theory than just being in the world. So, but so did, was that a question or more comment? So it's like, <laughs> it's a classic I, I, academic question. Is that a question or a comment? Questionment, um, as Michael said. Uh, how, I mean, what did you guys think of, um, you, you dudes think of, um, you know, like Ortega's uptake of, of Heidegger and it's, um, or in general, a phenomenology here as she's describing it. Um, Did I come out of left? No, Emily. No, (laughs) Emily. You want to? I, I was just um, returning to this passage at the end of the introduction before she goes into the chapter overview, um, where she gives sort of reasoning for the appeal um, to these Heideggerian notions, and I I was finding myself wondering at the second glance whether it's not like a overly generous sort of interpretation of what Heidegger offers us or whether I guess I've never really seen anybody talk about him in this particular way or talk about his phenomenology in this particular way. Um, that might be because I've avoided <laughs> people who deal with it intentionally, but I'm just going to read a couple things. Um, so she says, her reason for appeal to these notions stems from my view that the Heideggerian explanation of human beings while lacking in terms of its, of its ethics and politics does capture something important about us, that life is not about the entities we encounter or particular facts about them or ourselves. It is about the intertwining of the world and us, our experience as well as our sense of existing or being cannot be simply reduced to the material our lived experience reveals a sense of being, a sense of how we are, how we fare, that is connected to material circumstances and entities. I cannot presume to know what being in general is, but I have a sense of how I am as I live this life and traverse the complex terrain of the borderlands and the many worlds in which I find myself and to which I travel by necessity or by desire. I thus am deeply interested in the existential dimension of our lives as multiplicitous selves. And I yeah. thought that like the sort of 
intertwining that she does or that she claims is sort of um, an inspiration, a Heideggerian inspired that is not the experience um, which sort of plays into how we experience ourselves, but also how we experience sort of outcomes uh, in life, right? How we fare, how do we understand the way in which we fit or don't fit into certain moments or places in the world and to what effect, right? That to wrap all of these things in an account, a phenomenological account of the self feels like this really robust and kind of like, um, like it captures so much that isn't just relegated to the subject that speaks as an I and Mm -hmm. is like whole and rational, right? That it, that it requires, um, an account of, of sort of like the reciprocity between the world and us in it or something. And I don't know that I've seen somebody, anybody talk about Heidegger in that way before. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I have either, but like Emily, like you, Emily, I probably don't read enough Heidegger inflected work to like have a sense of that. Um, but like what, in addition to (laughs) both of the things that the two of you have used you to highlight it, uh, you know, the, there's something about the turn to Heidegger in this book that is itself kind of modeling uh, the sort of world traveling and home tactics that she's talking about in the text itself, right? Where it's like, it's not like she's, it's, you know, there's never uh, a full being at ease with Heidegger. There's never a full being at ease with Heideggerian philosophy. It's right, like, what are the home tactics that Ortega can use, right, as the philosopher, as the writer, as the multiplicitous self to uh, to kind of uh, tactically take up Heidegger and then uh, use him in other ways and re-signify him. And, uh, you know, and like, ultimately, I think Heidegger, uh, like, is useful for her for some sort of like initial kind of uh, moves in terms of the turn to existentialism and existentialism and existential phenomenology, right? But, you know, we start, you know, we read chapter three and chapter seven, right? And it seems like Heidegger, you know, has been useful also in situating her in a particular kind of philosophical discourse, right? It's almost like a, here's, you know, the like obligatory bow to like philosophers, even just continental philosophers who would not take me seriously, Less high. Mm-hmm. There was a little Heidegger in here, but that, you know, right. starting in chapter three onward, there's not a lot of Heidegger anymore, right? So right. It's like Heidegger becomes leverage or becomes a tactic in multiple senses for her so that we can get to, you know, this deep exploration of Lugones and world traveling and street walking theorizing and these sorts of uh, kind of philosophical, phenomenological, personal uh, modes of being in worlds um, where Heidegger like was just a way to get there. But also Heidegger is the way that it sort of does the work of revealing philosophies sort of, um, you know, partiality. If, if Ortega can get to a multiplicitous account of the self that is like personal, that it operates on the levels of all the senses and is, is, like open in all these ways through Heidegger, it's like, it kind of does a double, a, a sort of like a double poke <laughs> back at philosophy, right? Like, a, I don't know. That's really, I hadn't thought about it in that way well, until you just were talking about that, John. I think it does. It's not just like performing or not performing, but it's not just like, um, you know, being 
in a world not at ease, it's sort of like using the contours of that world to become at ease in, in a world in which you are thought not to be, or you might not belong in this kind of other broader sense and then or narrower sense. And the way that I, you know, while you were saying that, John, is that it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem as though, um, Heidegger disappears from the text as so much as it's built mm-hmm. within That's the world that she's inhabiting philosophically. Um, and that it, you know, kind of haunting the ways that, um, you know, that Ortega is describing what these worlds she's inhabiting ends up feeling like, um, as she's, and I think that's, I think that, you know, so much of this, and maybe I should have brought this up too at the beginning, like just before we started recording is like, it really captures or the use of Heidegger for me. Uh, the thing that sort of still sticks with me is this idea of being thrown in the world or thrownness in facticity. And that kind of describes where I think a lot of us, if we're thinking, you know, what are the practical takeaways of this text uh, is the feeling of thrownness that most people um, do experience in the world, which with Heidegger, like one of the central components of like, of his, of being in time, which she's taking and, um, you know, and, and putting to use in more effective ways um, for marginalized groups and, um, and intersectional feminisms is this feeling of not, you know, of the anxiety that's induced by being in worlds that seem immediately hostile, um, being in worlds that are, and in between worlds that seemingly lack a kind of a sense of control, um, and that the anxiety that allows for a certain kind of self-reflexivity in Heidegger can be both reflexive, but also, um, you know, dynamically immobilizing for Ortega. Right. So Heidegger could talk about anxiety as being self-reflexive or the most important mood, as it were, because it's not a pathological mood. But that for Ortega, it's easy for a privileged white philosopher to talk about anxiety in, in productive and self-reflexive ways, whereas for marginalized groups and specifically in the way that she's describing Latina um, existentialism, Latina phenomenology um, and feminism, that anxiety is in itself not only constitutive of a kind of distancing, but it can also create a space where one can't escape. Um, now, Heidegger might be describing the temporary, like the like the contemporary moment of that de- of that time in a technological age, where you know Ortega is saying, "But wait, you know, there is a sense that we are, you know, for her, the we um, in her se- like in her intersectional communities." Um, that 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 we is con, is constituted by a sense of shared anxieties. Um, well, and I think it's important that that they use the language not being at ease, exactly, right? Yeah. Because the being is sort of built into the mm-hmm. experience, right? So it's not just uh, like a, a feeling of anxiety; mm-hmm. it's like a feature of that world that constitutes one's experience in it or with it. Which is, yeah, because it's interesting, like recent appropriations of say like being in the world is it's become so commonplace that it lacks the hyphenations. And, and the, you know, the funny thing is that it's not pretentious to use the hyphenations in it because it's important to understand, right. That being in worlds as it's hyphenated emphasizes our being as it stands in relation to something. Um, rather than simply, you know, a grammatical formulation that says, oh, yeah, we just simply exist within worlds. But it's rather fundamentally tied or grounded to a multiplicitous world, <clears throat> to multiplicitous worlds that come back to, um, you know, our 
our sense of multiplicity selves. Right. And it's, and also that it's sometimes the being hyphen between hyphen worlds, right? It's like, I think one interesting thing that like a different sort of analysis of this text would do is like try to map out when is Ortega using the being between worlds and when is she using the being in worlds and kind of seeing what that does. Um, and I don't know, I mean, to kind of draw out one more thing on this Heidegger point, and then I'm going to pick up on something else that you said. I had a, an also a second. Oh, no, that you said. Well, so I was going to say, so this is also like the, the thing about kind of what is Heidegger and what is Ortega in relation to philosophy and the worlds of philosophy. Right? So she ends the home tactics chapter with, I would like to conclude with another confession. This is page 210. And she talks about being a philosopher uh, and a Latina feminist philosopher in an academic environment that continues to privilege maleness and whiteness and writing by maleness and whiteness, et cetera, et cetera. And then she ends uh, with, so what can I do? I take what is given to me and I make it my own dot, 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 with words, with ink, with li my lived experience. I offer you these words, these thoughts. I carve out a space for me in this philosophy that was never meant to be a home for me. This is one of my home tactics, right? So that, I think, is another kind of uh, way that she and then we are able to interpolate Heidegger, like, vis-a-vis -vis home tactics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and looking at what these philosophers that you know, and the way that we even as political theorists, philosophers, however, we decide to, you know, name ourselves in terms of our academic disciplines with whatever um, world we really decide find, to inhabit, right. And whatever <laughs> home we decide to, you know, carve stay out. claim and, and carve out is that most of the people that we end up reading and founding most of our basic assumptions concerning the world, um, she's rightfully pointing out that they've never constructed a philosophy to have included women, let alone um, you know, women of color, uh, queers, anyone that, you know, seems or at that moment would have been non-normative, that the home of philosophy was not carved out from Hegel and Kant, from the way um, Hume and Locke and a variety of others, all the way down to, you know, Socrates and Aristotle, for crying out loud. I mean, these folks never really meant for philosophy to exist as a home for minds and beings and experiences. And I love that she ends, you know, with this notion uh, that she, what can she do? Um, in one sense, um, she's, you know, taking what Heidegger would ultimately have chosen for himself and probably an obvious, and, and in that sense, like for a very select few, um, as we know from his Black Notebooks, uh, to inhabit a space, to be thrown in the world and to occupy that space forcefully. Um, to appropriate in one sense, you know, in a previous podcast, I said that Heideggerian ontology was out of power, but of, of appropriating a power that was perhaps never meant to be appropriated by folks who have been marginalized um, and to do so in such a way that, um, you know, it's to say that this is this is my space as well. Um, this is a time or, you know, it's also like and without proprietorial notions of, of ownership here. Um, but to say, you know, this is a, this in my doing and my being um, enacts a space for others to carve out their paths. I, that, can I ask my Heidegger question? Because yeah. it links to this point. Um, to what extent is the way that she's talking about space sort of part of the Heideggerian project? Or is that sort of where she, where the like Latina 
feminist intervention kind of like expands on or adds to the Heideggerian project. Because what our space like is such an important feature of this text, right? So and it's constantly like sp spatial temporal is sort of a common kind of descriptor you see in this book. And it, it, I was just wondering while you were talking to what extent space is something that, that Heidegger, you know, acknowledges that she is kind of rethinking through the lens of Latina feminist phenomenology or whether that, that is the thing that Latina feminists kind of bring to the discussion <coughs> of phenomenology itself. Can I, John, did you want to did you, is it okay if I, uh, you're okay. Um, <laughs> so I just don't want to over talk cause I know that when it comes to Heidegger, um, so I know that in being time, and I know if some of our listeners are like real Heideggerians, they may or may not jump on my case. They might not um, listen to the they podcast. Might, they might not even listen to the podcast. But I think we lost the Heideggerians yeah. back like three or four years ago. I was reading Levinas <laughs> and it was all good. But um, so space and Heidegger was, you know, being in time seemed to, um, be one of those moments where space and time could collapse. Temporality and spatiality could be used in um, in ways that were no longer just uh, you know uh, they weren't bifurcated. There was no dichotomy, so space could be temporized and and time could be spatialized mm. um, in productive ways where temporality become. But I, I mean, Heidegger ends up privileging temporality to a great extent okay. and the sense of like the horizon of being and all that, but. Um, but that space was something that wasn't just the space was something given. And, uh, and I think that Latina feminists and Latina phenomenologies can say space is much more than what is simply given mm -hmm. space is what is, um, made out of it. And I think that perhaps there is an under description to an extent in being in time about how space can be used for those purposes. Yeah. Or like other than like, of account of the self or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it's like, we always find ourselves, you know, for Heidegger, it's always, we always find ourselves in the world, but his world is the totality of significations, et cetera. Now we have like for him, like these smaller worlds, but it's always built within a larger world. Mm -hmm. And what Ortega and others like Ortega are doing is, is carving out, right. What you're, I think getting to is this combination of space and time mm -hmm. Um, instead of this strict dichotomy between the two. Yeah. Um, but that hopefully made some sense. Um, that worlds exist. It's not just a world. Um, space matters, but time and how we temporize that space matters um, to how we feel space and how we actually feel time. So, or did I just complicate the whole matter? No, no. <laughs> I think that helps because I, you know, in this sense, I think one of the things that this book does so well and that is so but also kind of hard to grasp is that right it it is really grounded it is concretized right it's a theorizing from not theorizing mm -hmm. about if that makes yeah. sense and that um like that, that yeah. like literal spaces are really important features of this account right when you walk in like do you feel at ease when you walk into a room is kind of like a question about everyday lived experience that motivates this philosophical account. And like, it, it's generative in that way. And so I think that like, um, you know, actual spaces in this account have significance beyond just sort of being an example of the kind of phenomenology that they, that Ortega wants to offer, 
it, it is like constitutive of the experience and the, of the account itself. And so my sense is that was that that was something inventive and new about this approach to phenomenology. And so I think, I, I think what you said confirmed my uh, suspicion. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. And I love the idea of theorizing, um, from instead of theorizing about, yeah. Right. Is that if mm -hmm. I remember? Yeah. I think that that's so, um, so critical, um, for these kinds of phenomenologies is having that situatedness that I think can get lost in, um, other phenomenological accounts, um, and philosophies of, you know, the, the dead white men that, you know, tend to cling. So importantly, oh, uh, to our, you know, our shared conception of, um, you know, the philosophical canon in the West. And there's something about the turn to spatiality, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Heidegger or in general, that like so is, is so essential to me for the Latina feminist phenomenological uh, project of this in a couple of different ways, right? One is that, uh, you know, the, the being between worlds and being in worlds to me seems like such a spatialized um, concept and kind of uh, uh, experience in that the different worlds are always different spaces. But what, what I, one of the things I really like about what Ortega does with that is the way that like one is always traveling between those worlds and between those spaces. And thus, this is like, I had a hard time thinking through the discussion of memory in the text um, until I started thinking about it in terms, in more phenomenological and more spatial terms. Mm. Um, so I think that's kind of like one way the spatiality was particularly resonated with me. And the second is the spatiality um, of Lugonis' accounts, uh, particularly kind of the streetwalking theorizing. And then thirdly, in some ways, what seemed most important to me was yeah. that the kind of constant necessary um, uh, imposition of uh, borders in terms of, you know, it's particularly Anzal Dua, right? But in terms of kind of Latina uh uh, yeah. philosophy or Latina feminism more broadly, right? That she's, uh, that Ortega is constantly going back to thinking about uh, her project as border thinking or border theorizing or border philosophizing. And so I think it's one of the ways that spatiality becomes so mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. is that that is not a phenomenon, not a spatial phenomenon that can ever be forgotten, right? Or should, or should ever be out of the account. Yeah. And I like, what I like about that too, is that it's such a concrete, it's <clears throat> it, the material and the phenomenological are so intertwined there, right? Mm -hmm. The border lands are literally spaces between worlds in a sense. And then, but, but it also constitutes people as between, between worlds. Well, thinking about um, recently, and, you know, I guess there is no 10 second period where we can't talk about Trump on some level, but, uh, you know, his recent, um, so-called, uh, you know, assertion that he would try to amend the 14th amendment or get around the 14th amendment's, um, natural or birthright citizenship clause, um, you know, speaks to this idea of what happens, um, when, and this is talk about, you know, either borders um, in terms of physical or non-physical space, but how that draws a line in the sand as to what being at ease ends up feeling or is as being experienced um, when you have a symbolic head of government um, in an historically problematic and, uh, you know, racist state 
you know, speaking to um, an entire class of people is not belonging. Uh, and that, you know, in that sense, it's reifying um, the rigidity of um, space as something, um, you know, potentially destructive that like Anzaldúa has had to time and time again um, recuperate and, you know, make and, you know, in that way, um, you know, create generative forms of being out of it, um, out of the toxicity that, you know, folks like Trump and others, um, you know, with him, uh, you know, have have attempted to draw on the like draw on the like the metaphysical sand, but also like quite literal, um, you know, everyday living experience. Um, you know, this can speak to, and this is one of the reasons why I got drawn to Ortega as well, is that the trans experience has been recently, you know, getting trampled upon um, by the same administration through attempts to naturalize um, biological features of sex and gender, um, you know, via you know, a memo saying that Obama era protections in that regard are going to be, um, you know, rescinded. And it creates a space in which yeah, that is a world in one sense that when you hear these things, it creates an image of the world that is experienced and felt that carves into your experience of another world that, you know, is shaped and cohabitates in that sense, a larger picture of, of racism or transphobia that you have to attempt to make do within. Um and that's, you know, in, in some ways, like Home Tactics spoke to me about, you know, Cydia Hartman's notions of making do in scenes of, of subjection. Um, and, you know, even Claudia Rankin's work um, in Citizen and the ways that, you know, how the worlds um, that, that we then go in between and are shaped by um, are, in some way, we have to find ways of crafting um, not so much survival as it is what constitutes a sense of flourishing. Um, and that the, you know, these worlds are not exactly from their, very, you know, from the very opening, something that is inviting. Um, and that it's not, you know, this is something that I think that is so beautiful about Ortega's writing as well as the, um, you know, the content within it is that it's sensitive and not in a sentimental way, it's, it's sensitive to what the lived experience is, whereas, say, Heideggerian phenomenology, even Merleau-Ponty, for that matter, any phenomenologist from, you know, back in the day are not looking at how marginalized life feels or what it is to feel and to exist and to be, um, how the body can feel conflicted and confused. And her discussion of Lugonis is saying it is okay to be confused, that the multiplicity of selves exist in confusion sometimes, um, and that making do doesn't necessarily look like defeat, um, but something, you know, something that allows one to thrive within otherwise, you know, dissipating or, um, you know, with other, within otherwise dissipating conditions. Um, and she's just amazing at that. I had two thoughts that came out of uh, everything that you just said. One is, do you think being at ease is a way that she's trying to theorize or think about flourishing? I think so. I think in some sense, you know, what it is to flourish doesn't necessarily in my, this is just me sort of riffing here, uh, that flourishing doesn't have to necessarily look like the traditional patterns of, of, um, or proprietorial sense of flourishing that we, you know, accumulate capital and we lead the good life through, you know, a normative genre of being, but rather, 
whatever it is that we can, you know, whatever it is that we engage in that gives us traction in the world, a kind of ballast, um, so that our ordinaries feel stable enough. Um, and so that we, in some sense can get into, uh, you know, so that being in worlds happens, Mm -hmm. um, where I think, you know, what are, so for me, it's like, that's where I guess my, my own affective turn would come in is like what, (laughs) uh, what Ortega is attempting to do is describe states of being, um, that are particular to, you know, Latina feminism and, uh, marginal, uh, senses of, of the self. Um, but then what is it that in some sense, these are the consequences that I would have is like, what is it to, to have the traction in the world in the first place, um, to, to have that existential moment, um, to exist in worlds, um, and to have a sense of the ordinary self or selves, um, in home tactics and, you know, these kinds of affective knowledges, um, in a way are, you know, is a sense of that ballast, that way of getting into, um, into those worlds that she's speaking about. Right. And that flourishing for me is perhaps even at minimum having traction in those worlds. Um, and again, I think, you know, these are some of the worries that I would have is, you know, there's a lot of focus on, and I think she gets about into this in other chapters. And I can't recall if in the specific chapters that we read, like, right. That the dichotomy between oppression and resistance mm-hmm. and that there's a privileging of what resistance looks like. That's oftentimes proprietary in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we, you know, that she wants to sort of distance herself from that and that studies of, um, you know, everyday or ordinary affect or about, and phenomenology for that matter, um, are about what life looks like, if not defeated, then what forms of life are there um, in which one can continue? Because especially these days, it seems as though existence is is trying in itself. What I've found Ortega to, um, what speaks to me so heavily throughout is like, as a way of existing um, and to feel as though it's okay to have traction and to find those things that allow us to exist and get and have that traction. It's okay to, to hold on to those things. Um, and it's not, yeah. anybody, you know, <laughs> I think that, I think that proprietary is a really useful way of thinking about it. And this question, Emily, then of at ease and flourishing is really important. So kind of what I've been thinking about over the past five or 10 minutes is, you know, we actually have kind of like this, and I would feel almost bad using this as an example or an illustration of what Ortega is talking about, mm-hmm. right? But with uh, the but with Trump and the border, right, we have actually kind of the starkest, one of the most violent examples of how a desire for home or belonging can be incredibly, like, violently, like, deathly exclusive yeah. in the way that Ortega talks about in the Home Tactics chapter that, you know, there's a desire for home that is about closing, like closing the door and about excluding people from that home. And so one can make it so reliant on some kind of closed uh, territorialized notion of identity or sameness or something like that, that home or belonging becomes exclusive as opposed to thinking of home and home tactics in the way that 
she is speaking to and that Emily and B, I think both of you have pointed to, whether it's a notion of a kind of resistance or a notion of a kind of being at ease or being at ease so as to be able to do this resisting that as uh, Ortega and Via Luganus points out, like is always uh, more complicated than just this position of being resisting. And, you know, then like there's the political theoretical question about flourishing as a political good. Right. Um, in relationship to being at ease, right? And like, I think I would much prefer, uh, you know, to be uh, cheeky about it, uh, much prefer Ortega's being at ease, if whether that is quote unquote flourishing or not, than like an Aristotelian sense of flourishing, right? right? right. Yeah. Well, which, 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 which is the mastery and the domination and the belonging um, that is exclusive. And I think to your initial point about, um, the door closing and sort of drawing a circle around belonging based on identity. The context, the settler colonial context makes that the sort of the spatial element of that extra salient, right? That mm-hmm. like, it's not that the, the, it really highlights the kind of arbitrariness of that line, right? Of the, of the qualifications for home given that the literal space, right? There's, there's a, um, a a long violent history to the space itself, right? Where, um, that people who lived on land were expelled for no reason other than that they didn't meet that mythical, you know, the mythical criteria for belonging or something like that. Right. Well, on 205, um, if I just wanted to read a, um, a passage, it's like maybe the fifth sentence in. It says, my account of home tactics is my response to the paradoxical will to belong while understanding the mythical, magical, and thus unreal aspects of home. It is also my disclosure, and there's I wanted to talk about this idea of disclosure, of what multiplicitous selves are, re- are already doing in their everyday experience. I clearly do not oppose grander and more sustained political projects, but I do not wish to overlook or forget those uh, moments when multiplicity selves struggle with everydayness and find ways, yes, to quote, make do, to feel comfortable in spite of a clear understanding of the ways in which power relations are bound to undermine, to hurt, or to alienate. Um, and then, of course, home tactics can be deployed at a personal or relational level. I love this idea that um, home tactics is a side of play, where if, you know, in my use of the term flourishing, uh, you know, if to empty it of some of its um, Aristotelian, uh, <laughs> you know, history to say, if making do uh, is a site um, of everydayness, which is like the average facticity of a person's existence, that it can be um, a place where someone feels um, and pushes against this, again, proprietorial notion of, um, I have all of this that counts for something that power relations would suggest, right, is the, the metric for success and the metric for the good and happiness. But rather, she's inviting a way of rethinking those um, tactics of making do or those those ways of existing um, in such a way as to say the non-normative way of thinking and being in the world might look strange to others and might not look like it is in some sense, right? The, you know, the normative dimension of happiness, right? That we would say, but rather it is a sense that invites a critique of that happiness or might, might in, thus invite a critique. And of course, I'm thinking of Sarah Ahmed as I'm speaking, John, you mentioned um, Ahmed uh, 
before we started recording, it's like this idea of um, it's okay to have, to look at the ways that you're being in the world, although not by normative standards exist on a radar of happiness constitutes nevertheless um, a, a, uh, a worthwhile, and I don't even want to like, I don't even know what the word would be. Um, if it's not worthwhile, a valid, meaningful, meaningful sense of being, um, and not even in the way of the, that it has to be the sentimental politics of you matter, but that, you know, there is mattering in the way that people in their everydayness who are excluded or live at the margins make do. Um, and that those have to be taken into account. Either we say as indexes of or indices of larger structural antagonisms and problems, or we can just invite an opportunity that these these tactics are themselves constitutive of a way of being and invite uh, a, a more reparative way of viewing them. I don't know. That was just me going out. But this this book really spoke to me, obviously. So it's <laughs> it's a, it's an amazing text. But I, you know this this idea of um, as you mentioned, John, more than ever these days, uh, a sense of jeopardy and threat. I think loom on the horizon um, of most marginalized groups, and even within the context of uh, of lines of privilege being sort of dissolving and eroding to a certain extent, that many people uh, share a sense of, you know, a fraying, as it were, of their genre of being. And Ortega kind of speaks to a recuperation of how we can refine ourselves um, without it turning to, you know, more hegemonic notions of the self. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this weirdly, or maybe not weirdly, right? I've been thinking about Berlant and cruel optimism mm -hmm. and kind of the way that everydayness and atmospherics and like these sort of things uh, play a role in that work from her, right? And, you know, I mean, granted, they have very different projects, right? But there's, I think, a certainly different, like, affective in phenomenological valence to Ortega's work than there is to Berlant's work to mm -hmm. me, it seems. I'm glad that you brought up Berlant. I think that I was <clears throat> thinking of her uh, in Cruel Optimism and um, Desire Love uh, in the way that, um, you know, when we find ourselves attached to certain projects that give ourselves traction. So I always thought of this, you know, home tactics could be in one sense a parallel, but not quite, the, obviously not quite the same as affective attachments uh, within the, the scope of Berlant's work, mm. where we are carrying out certain practices that cruelly or not, in terms of its optimism, allow us a sense of self, a sense of traction to have a self, to be somebody, to be anything. Um, whether or a sense of familiarity yeah. is one of the important kinds of ways that Ortega configures, um, like the sort of like political good of home tactics or something. Yeah, no. And I love that. And it's like, you know, I think with Berlant, it's always a kind of um, the potential for a critique of larger structural scopes of, um, you know, neoliberal or economic uh, good life fantasies. And for Ortega, she's offering both in one sense. She's saying, okay, look at the everyday lived experiences of people um, in the as racialized others and ethnic um, others 
uh, but also look at philosophy itself. Look at these disciplines that have marginalized thought to such an extent that even her affective attachments to philosophy in this meta way um, reflect a sense that, you know, you know, it's a critique of the disciplines and academia more large, you know, in a larger um, context, right? Mm-hmm. Like saying, I have to make traction in this world yeah. and that this is one sense of my traction making. I think it's really telling though that many of her examples of home tactics are, like we've said before, not uh, necessarily constitutive of like intellectual labor, right? There are tactile examples. It's cooking, it's painting your home, it's speaking in Spanish. And that like, in that sense, affective attachments doesn't maybe capture the kind of like everydayness of, of home tactics, although it might be a kind of example of, of a way of thinking about them Mm -hmm. or of a way of thinking about, I don't know why I keep recoursing to like goods of things <laughs> way my brain is working but it is we, but it is it's, it's like it's our disciplinary training right? yeah, yeah. so oh my god it is um Ooh. but i could see that as being a kind of like how we understand the good or in the good life we're like sort of you know up taking a little bit of berlant there but it's like so what it is to have the good life what it is that we find to be good might from a normative or more like so-called dominant standpoint not appear to be good at all um, or be worthy of the good, um, but that in an everyday sense of, of you know, either community or everyday sense of self-making, um, that, you know, it's kind of like, fuck your good. <laughs> These are, you know, goods, um, you know, that give me that fact that I need. Um, and I hesitate to use words like need, et cetera, but, um, you know, it's just maybe the, you know, poverty of language. I don't know. Well, but. I think need is not wholly inappropriate here, yeah. right? I mean, are constantly talking about this, like more than survival, yeah. right? And for, so presumably like sur- need Ugh. is attached to survival in a Just. bit. So we want to say like, there's something more than need at stake or more. Yeah. that Like need is, you know, a sort of baseline necessary, but not sufficient or whatever. Yeah. And way I- of thinking about life at the margins or something. And John, I think that like, just to bring you back, like bring it back to what you were saying earlier is that we're, there's no more time. I think, well, even in my recent, you know, limited, obviously 35 years, but like 30 years of cognitive experience and memory, which we could come back to memory at like Institute of the Self or whatever. But um, that now more than ever, there is a violent sense of like what it is to exist at all. Um, to ha- inhabit a normativity successfully um, seems to be more and more um, a qualification for entering everyday life where it has always been, but that it seems as though that ability to do and inhabit a normativity is becoming more difficult um, and that it's becoming more violent in the sense of those who fail to achieve normativity. Um, and that, you know, those failures are, you know, seen as sites of, of justified violence. And it's, that's terrifying in that sense. And it's like, what more, you know, and in so many ways we could, you know, I I don't know. And I I wanted to see where you guys, uh, use dudes, um, feel, um, (laughs) about the following, but in what sense is, you know, does home tactics then appeal to, how it is that one can even create a sense of longevity and future oriented thinking in, 
in a world, right? In a world and world. <laughs> I know it's like in a world where Trump is hostile to normativities. Um, <laughs> but you know, in these Enter worlds, the multiplicity, exactly, yeah. the multiple <laughs> taking over. Um, that you know, in the sense that there is a violent jeopardy um, uh, or threat to being. Um, that home tactics and ways of being and, and these sort of uh, a sense of everydayness becomes more and more important, but at the same time become more and more sites of tenuousness where, you know, even those things are being attacked, where, you know, we're reverting and retrenching back to a state where as if we've ever transcended it in the first place, but, you know, we're speaking Spanish in the home. Or speaking Spanish on the street could be, you know, the site of potential violence again, you know, on the part of white nationalists mm -hmm. or failure to achieve a certain gendered conventionality and normativity, um, which has always been the case, but even more amped up lately as a scene of violence against the, the trans person. Um, failing, of course, to consider that we are always failing at achieving a normativity or conventionality um, to get altogether. But, you know, it. What you said, John, is that it invites us back to to consider what it is, how or how it is that violence in separating out worlds is so real um, in in a contemporary politics. Yeah, and I mean, they're kind of I'm in, not to I'm respond to saying, but yeah. <laughs> in like two directions. I mean, one is there's this really interesting, and I kind of wanted more of this discussion at the end of the home tactics chapter. You know, where she talks about like wouldn't one be able to say that like British colonizers go somewhere and they create a home in this place that they are colonizing in this place mm -hmm. where they are being imperial. And isn't that arguably a kind of home tactics? And I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm fully satisfied with the answer that mm -hmm. she gives. She's where was like, it? This is like 208, 209. Okay. Um, you know, and where she kind of almost like just, defines home tactics in a way that defines out something like British colonizers bringing their homes, as she says, bringing their home with them to the new places of conquest, transforming these new territories so as to fit their customs and desires rather than adapting to their new land and customs. And then later on in that paragraph on 209, she talks about, and actually the, the specific phrase making do, which one of you brought up with regards to Hartman mm -hmm. uh, earlier, you know, and talk about how and Ortega talks about how that home tactics is specifically for making do in unfriendly, unwelcoming environments for the purpose of creating comfort and a life filled with difficulties due to one's in-betweenness, marginalization, and oppression. Right. So it kind of defines out the possibility of a dominant oppressing group engaging in home tactics. Yeah. And I'm not, I, I mean, I'm obviously incredibly sympathetic to not wanting to include, you know, colonizers or white nationalists as people engaging in home tactics. I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's like the most uh, politically like efficacious way of doing that with the notion though. Yeah. And I had a second point, but I won't go into it. I, maybe we can get to it in a few minutes. I had a similar thought when I was reading this is like what, what are, I mean, we've talked about, we've talked about this in a lot of different ways on this podcast, but sort of like when you're opening up things, right. Concepts and worlds and all this stuff, like how do you prevent sort of the co-op, you know, the co-optation yeah. take of this language for the pursuit of projects that are at root deeply contrary to 
these projects of opening, right? And there's a kind of like a kind of irony there that even though the the essence of these these projects is resistant to those ideologies and those ways of thinking that it still kind of like lends itself to uh, uh, at a very like unsophisticated level justifying or uh, uh you know a claim to home from or a homemaking or home tactic from somebody who is just like recapitulating dominant you know hegemonic narratives it's 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 a tough puzzle, I think. It's like, uh, I mean, so I actually want to get your take on this as well. That's something I was thinking of while we were speaking about, also while we were, um, while I was reading this text, is um, actually what I've been thinking about all semester, uh, is this idea that the structures that give people traction in the world that are hegemonic or dominant are slowly and have been eroding. And this is going back a little bit to Berlant, but others like Nigel Thrift as well, like um, Marxists who are looking at the state of neoliberalism and, um, and how, you know, the rise of the retrenchment in white nationalism, um, racism, xenophobia, the alt-right, et cetera. It seems to be in some, I don't know, I want to ask this question. It seems as though what they're finally waking up to the idea or waking up to the empirical fact to a certain extent that these structures are eroding, but that they have not been in some sense or another fully helping develop um, who they are, whether they're, you know, if they're white nationalists, these uh, people who take on violent actions against others um, on the basis of difference. Um, that they're finally coming to the realization, but in a very strange way and obviously not articulated in, in this fashion, that there are structures in government and economics that are failing, that the system is fucked, but that, of course, they scapegoat um, others in their pursuit of trying to find, you know, a sense of belonging that has seemingly never been there for them. But that what they're, in essence, uh, you know, the deep-seated affective attachments that they have are the very experiences as marginality and marginalization that have been going for centuries. Right. And that there has been a lack of structure in everyday world making for the marginalized that have been, you know, in that sense of voice that has been suppressed, that these folks are now finally starting to realize, but not connect. You well, know, so maybe, maybe Ortega would, we, if we could talk a little bit more in some of her terms, like maybe one of the things that happens when the marginalized become at ease or be are at ease in multiplicitous worlds is that the dominant mode of being becomes less at ease, or maybe that's like potentially one of the generative effects, mm -hmm. right? That like, and there's a reason why, you know, the white, uh, you know, the like conservative student in a, a class on like race and gender feels uncomfortable in the room and that discomfort is actually productive for kind of resisting relations of domination and sort of thinking about power in that sense. But I don't know if that's a satisfying kind of satisfying enough to the concern that, that you've raised. John. Yeah. I don't think but, that it's never, we're ever going to be satisfied. Right. It's yeah. sort of like when Audre Lorde speaks of self care, it was supposed to be revolutionary in the sense that women who had never had power in the public or private spaces of life, were able to then care enough to have for themselves to develop the energy reserves and preserve energy enough to engage in community making. 
now self-care is going to the spa, you know, having cucumbers put over your eyes or, you know, retail therapy, which then gets, you know, in that sense, rerouted into, you know, the affective circuits of capitalism and therapy and a variety of other things that, hey, I go to a therapist, but we live in a culture that routes public feelings to, you know, medicalized, um, you know, offices. Mm -hmm. Uh, but again, that's my, in one sense, that's my home tactic of, of dealing in, in a way and not to overindulge in the, the word home tactic, but perhaps my tactic in dealing with the stresses of gender and not in, and identities there, therein, um, is, you know, in some sense, like trying to find a normativity that no longer exists or is that is fraying, you know, in some way. Uh, it's trying to find a place that in some way doesn't have the traction it used to have. Um, and sorry, John, I know that I heard that you were, you said something and then I, I totally kept going. No, that's okay. I mean, I was, I was thinking about how another reason that I think this book is so generative is that it provides a kind of, um, so let me go into, go into it this way, right? I was thinking about what are some of the other phenomenological or potentially phenomenological ways one might think about, uh, you know, about whiteness that is called into question or understands itself to be called into question, right? And one of them is I'm thinking about uh, Robin D'Angelo and white fragility, mm -hmm. right? But it's interesting that Ortega is talking about a kind of fragility of the multiplicitous self of the world traveler, right? But it's a it's a uh, it's a fragility towards coalition or it's a fragility towards non-domination. And as opposed to a white yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. As opposed to a white fragility that is like white fragility being towards will to power or something yeah. like that, or being mm -hmm. towards violence, right? So the so the different kind of valences of a certain kind of uh, non-wholeness as a phenomenological sense. And then this is, I mean, something I'm thinking and writing about uh, and writing with is uh, another book that I thought of while we, I was reading Ortega was Lewis Gordon's Bad Faith and Anti-Black Racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And that there, that's also a phenomenology. He goes to Sartre rather than to Heidegger um, as kind of resources for thinking through some of these questions about power and relationality and non-relationality. Well, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's just interesting that we're living, we're living in a time. I always hate like those, those cliches, but it, it just seems. <laughs> I know, I know, and then I'm Since guilty the of it. Since the dawn of capitalism, um, that we are living. At least we're experiencing a time at which uh, people coming forward and are making claims that their sense of self that have you know from our perspective and from you know as academics or as people who live within these liminal spaces um, our entire lives. Um, are saying, well, welcome, you know, in, in one sense, uh, oh, you are finally finding out that these dynamics of power that have privileged you are in fact no longer privileging you in the same capacity, um, but that there has been a lag is kind of like a catching up um, because these same systems of power have not been privileging these same folks for 
you know, decades, yeah. um, that there's been a crumbling infrastructure, but that, you know, in one sense, it's not welcome in the ways of like, let's join hands and sing Kumbaya, but, you know, welcome to the scene of life in which there is a kind of, uh, a dispossession, a throneness, you know, if you will, that comes along with the, ter- the territory of being, um, in worlds, but you know, that comes with the territory of being as a part of the human condition. I think I want to change my mind. I know I posed the question about whether the sort of the oppressor or the dominant becoming less at ease is kind of a feature of this project, but I, I want to, I, now I want to think that Ortega is not really interested in that as a, as an effect because she wants to decouple resistance from always only being a reaction to oppression. So there one needs to be like a space to live a resistant multiplicitous self without it, like being a sort of tactic to the oppressor, right? It's a tactic for being at ease as a self, not simply or not in the end so that the oppressor is less of a self or something. Sounds like Vina Doss's like <clears throat> work on life and words. I mean, it's like this idea of a form of life taking shape, um, in its own particularities, um, that it is, you know, in everyday, the soft, what the soft knife of everyday oppressions is like Vina Doss had said at one point, but that in so-called making do and that it's never, it's never enough, but it should, or it should never be enough to simply relate it to a, a system of hegemonic power, mm-hmm. but rather it should be about what it is that this form of life is doing, engaging in the limits of it. Um, and not as a sentimental project, um, but as a project of understanding human life as, you know, as we don't know it. And like sense, world right? creating, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That forms of life are world creating. And in many instances, they're also world shattering. Because a form of life, you know, within, let's say, you know, within a hegemonic group, a non, like, you know, to take it from the standpoint of um, a non-dominant group can rise to the status of of hegemony violently um, and, you know, recuperate violence in a way that is, you know, detrimental. Um, And I'm using this as not just a, you know, one sense, like a, you know, an ethnic marginalized or racially marginalized class, but rather these groups of people, white nationalists, and, you know, in one sense, you say hegemonic or they're rising to the status of um, hegemony, um, are taking and recuperating a violence that, I don't know, there was, there are a lot of thoughts happening simultaneously as I'm thinking of Fanon here, but, uh, sort of recuperate, taking and appropriating the violence of what colonialism is and establishing, a world shattering view, um, of that and reinstantiating a world shattering view of their, um, sense of powerlessness. Um, as I find it very interesting, I don't know that I think, cause I'm, uh, my, my question would be, I suppose the extent to which someone feels their fragile world, um, is coming to a close. So, uh, dramatically that they would shatter another world to secure their own. Mm-hmm. Um, to the extent that, you know, this has been an historical, um, 
set of coincidences for that person or that group. I know that Ortega's project is not about, you know, trying to dive into the hegemonic group and make an apologia, but that, you know, she's attempting to say there are forms of life that take place even within the most hegemonic and, and dominant um, features uh, that the multiple, that her theories and philosophies of the multiplicitous self or selves um, would allow for um, that break and splinter off. Well, I guess right? in that sense, John's question still stands, right? Mm-hmm. Cause I think she would say world shattering is not, cannot be considered a home tactic precisely because it does that right mm-hmm. because it's world shattering. And so then, but I think we're still left with the question that John raised, which is like, is that satis- is that satisfying? Is that a satisfactory sad. answer? <laughs> well, and, and I don't think it does or does not have to be a satisfactory mm-hmm. answer, right. but it actually takes me to, and maybe this, maybe this can be kind of a final question for us to talk about, but uh, about the difference that Ortega makes between a multiplicitous self versus multiple selves and kind of the stakes of that distinction. And that's one of the things that she wants to kind of move somewhat away or somewhat differently than Lugenes, who is more for Ortega, a theorist of multiple selves or a philosopher of multiple selves. Whereas for Ortega, she wants to hold on to this notion of a multiplicitous self. So I'm wondering what you two think are kind of the stakes of that for her And like, I wonder if that has any bearing on kind of the last 10 or 15 minutes of our discussion also. Yeah. I think that one of the key moves there is to, and I was thinking about this when you brought up uh, some of the questions or concerns around memory is that the, um, I, I think her question of like, how am I supposed to remember what self I was where or when is kind of a way that it it like forecloses access to some features of selfhood that even though they might come from the kind of Eurocentric, you know, humanist tradition, we might want anyway, right? We might want to speak like, or I don't want to say speak with authority, but we might want to like, to be sort of like authors of our own narrative or something that the I is kind of useful in that sense. And that to be to think about existence as like slipping, slipping between selves means that like we might lose some parts of the dominant understanding of the self that we actually want. Maybe. I'm not I love sure. that. No. Yeah. Because I think that um, it's losing the, it's distancing the sovereign eye or it's distancing a sense that the sovereign eye um, and the will that goes along with it and the responsibility that goes along with it can dissolve. Um, that the I as a, as a multiplicitous self inhabiting worlds and being between worlds, you know, is, doesn't have to look like this or that it's, you know, I relate it to, um, you know, trans narratives or narratives of transition in which there is this sort of competing worldview, whether there is a transition from oneself to another and that, you know, there is a moment, um, that something is corrected as if the consciousness mm. of the trans person has now been completed and the temporality of that trans person's life um, is connected as a whole. Right. There's a before and an right. after right. That, like separate. And that's of. cis normativity because no, you know, in, in that role, no cis person really has to develop a, 
a sense of self that is bifurcated between a then and a now Mm -hmm. or a future for that matter, as if I've always got to struggle for a future body. Um, You know, folks like Andrea Long Chu or um, and amongst um, other theorists, you know, entering into trans studies these days, we're saying, what if we just inhabit this body, this phenomenological body, which I think is what Ortega is saying as well, that you can have a consistent self, but inhabit multiple worlds in such a way that I think to borrow from um, Chu's tweet from like the other day, uh, that, you know, transitions a lot like, you know, getting on a plane and flying from, you know, Los Angeles to New York, say, um, but then realizing that you're always going to be on the plane. <laughs> um, hmm. and I think that that's right. Um, because in one sense, it's constantly in one, in a, one way or another, no before or after, but rather a constant state in, of, of being in between of caught, traveling, of traveling, of experiencing, and that we don't have to impose a before and after, or even a now on narratives of the self, um, but rather just take what is in some sense. I'm also wondering too, whether discussions of multiple selves don't kind of subtly imply um, something like choice or, or invite questions about choosing, Mm -hmm. you know, which self to be when that, that um, I think Ortega would be sort of wary, wary of. Yeah. Cause it could, yeah. I mean, in in that sense, it's almost as if, like there's the danger of the multiple cells, perhaps precisely for that notion, like actually relying on some further back sovereign right. self from which whether whether Orteo or theorists of multiple cells are trying to like uh, move away mm-hmm. from or like explicitly reject or disavow. It's kind of interesting too to think about like in that sense, both accounts are are like resisting the same beast, but. W- like with recourse to some of its kind of like objects or objects in the non-philosophical sense, just in like right, right. pieces of yeah. parts. Right. Um, ugh, so many I was words. About to say, it's like, so oh God, laden. objects resist. <laughs> um, objects resist. Um, and maybe that's one of the sort of like difficulties of a project like this anyway, right. That our understanding of existence is so, and I think the point of the project, right. Our understanding of existence is so laden with these like deeply violent, histories, our, our understanding from the perspective of trying to resist domination, right. Is that even how we explain what existence is, is so laden with all these violent histories that like you have in some, in some way you have to kind of like, I don't know, there's no starting over almost there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I, I just wanted to say too um, that what I love about this work and where this conversation is going is it's inviting the fact that anxiety is not a pathological state. And I, and as someone who lives with panic disorder and anxiety disorders, severe depression, all you know, these things that are diagnostic tools in a very medicalized society, um, I can speak to the fact that there are benefits that can be alleviated, or there are benefits that one can receive to alleviate things like anxiety, general anxiety, et cetera. But one of the things that gets, you know, that's a privilege in, in so many ways, it's class mm-hmm. privilege, but that anxiety related to everyday life is induced by things that are not in that sense, so easily pathological or um, uh, that can be so, re- that can be reduced to those, uh, 
you know, abnormalities, as one might say. Or like um, sort of like physiological inputs and outputs exactly. or whatever. That it's a product of systemic antagonisms, that it's a product of everyday encounters of those antagonisms, and that the anxiety that we experience within and like when we inhabit those worlds um, is anxiety that is, you know, coming from uh, not just a critical self distance that allows us to go, hmm, let me analyze this moment for a second, but rather, oh my God, my, there is a, you know, there is an existential threat to my very being um, that could be potentially shattering. Um, what do I do to repair the circuits that are there um, that allow me to continue and, and, and uh, you know, and move forward and that, you know, these anxieties should be spoken about more publicly um, without it. And I think this is sort of goes into my own work, I guess, but it's sort of being allowed to talk about anxieties that aren't going to easily be reducible to gender dysphoria um, or states of anxiety as, um, as being, you know, part of, you know, a biochemical dysfunction, um, but rather, you know, feeling panic and, uh, you know, modes of, as modes of being, they relate to actual states of the world that is filled with threat and hostility and toxicity. Um, and that there is something phenomenologically valid about moving forward in that discourse, right? And saying, it's not just me. The sovereign eye, I mean, I suppose to carry it back. The critique of the sovereign eye is that I'm not necessarily responsible for my own, you know, accretion of anxiety and panic, that I am not the one to blame, nor is it my biology, but rather it is a world or the, you know, the genre in which I find myself of the worlds um, that is producing something that is triggering these, these kinds of things. This might not be some kind of new insight, but it's certainly a new way that Ortega is inviting us to think about. Um, did you know, we, did we, what book did we read where we talked a lot about fitness, not like fitness, but fit, fitting? It's, it's funny you ask that, Emily, because I'm having like some deja yeah. vu to, right? I believe it was the three of us in our Sedgwick episode. Oh, that was, okay. it was, it was, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's where the, it's taking me back in some sense to that is it's, you know, an invitation to think about the everyday again. But also to, you know, to take it to a level of abstraction, but then taking it back to say, you know, these ways of being are not just valid, but they are formed and they are not just formed out of resistance to hegemony. They're formed within, you know, things that can't even be thought. Right. Or they're just a feature of existence. Yeah. Right. That. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Built, yeah. Which, yeah. Which, funny, which takes us back to like thrownness and Heidegger right. and like the quite the reason why Emily that you pointed out Ortega turns to Heidegger. Right. It is the thrownness and facticity. Right. Of that like we, yeah, it's a way of saying that, that if we want to talk about existence at all, we have to think about these everyday things and philosophy. Like here's, here's the entire experience of existing that you missed. <laughs> and you, you know, the deep irony is that it's so sad. Well, I mean, it's sad on multiple levels, but that Heidegger was more or less saying that about Western philosophical, the Western philosophical canon in the twenties, he turns out to be a complete fucking asshole. But then, you know, Ortega and others, you know, are saying that central critique that component of saying you're getting it all wrong. Mm -hmm. You have to take the ordinary and the everyday into considerations of what it is mm -hmm. to be a self 
that the sovereign eye doesn't exist as such. Right. And then here, let us show you how to do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) now we'll let you, you know, in a prose style that's actually accessible um, and in a way that, you know, subscribes to what a lived narrative looks like. And she's so unapologetic about it. I love it. In that sense, maybe it's like the project is that you can't make good on like Heideggerian promises without the Latina feminist phenomenological account. Yeah, absolutely. Precisely. Great. Damn. I think think that's a mic drop on it. That makes that a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Oh, I want to point out, so that, that was the end of like, Emily just brought it all together. <laughs> totally. That was absolutely. And then I want to point one thing out and that is that, so I'm looking at the episode description for our Eve Sedgwick mm-hmm. episode, which was October, 2016. Oh, oh wow. <gasps> part of what we said, we talked about, uh, uh, how do we get from theorizing to the ground, to the reparative forms of relationality oh. that may function to heal in the midst of crisis? All these, as well as B's mysterious return to Heideggerianism, <gasps> will be eagerly and shockingly explored. Oh, so, like, my God. We're having our own, our own like, memory traces of our multiplicity selves. I love it. It, uh, it, it was Halloween chills. yesterday. No, I have chills, too. It was Halloween yesterday, y'all. It's also y'all, a little so, bit cold in here. And, yeah, whatever. it's a little chilly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, the yeah, wow. This is so, I would just wanted to say, again, that this is such a generative book. We got through, like, a, yeah. such a small fraction of things that we thought were interesting about it. Um, May I mention, I will be talking, or I will be talking about this um, text and this episode uh, and the podcast and, you know, putting it on the positive scale, putting it on blast, as it were, um, at Harvard, (laughs) Harvard University's um, sound conference, uh, sound education conference. I'll be speaking, which I think will have already happened by the time this. Posts, yes, but uh, uh, there will be. Uh, so the organizers are actually making sure that everything is taped, recorded. Um, I will uh, be taking my own um, recording device, uh, but that um, I'll be speaking from two to two thirty. Um, I can update on my own blog, and always already we can um, update Great. on that as well. But yes, that um, it's will. it's going to be a fa- it's actually the conference starts started today. It goes until Sunday morning. Um, so if you're in the Cambridge area, um, you know, and check out check out the conference. It's being hosted by Harvard Divinity's um, Harvard's Divinity School. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for everyone um, who would show, wants to show, and has been an ongoing supporter of always already. Here, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I say, Harvard, <laughs> and I think B B is going to show Harvard what's actually up. I would like to. Up. I would like to think that, and I really appreciate that support, John. I do, I do. So I, I, um, I'm looking forward to talking about Ortega, um, and reparative reading, and the sort of the genre of what the Always Already podcast is about. Ooh. And on that note, I think I think we'll have more podcasts going forward. I, think, I yeah, like love that. Maybe this is a good return. Yes. Um, and I will say, maybe I shouldn't give the full details because we're still working them out. But I think listeners to the Always Ready podcast can anticipate starting in late November, early December, uh, the first of what will be a three-part series of podcasts from myself, Rachel, and friend of the podcast, Sid. Great. Yay! Very exciting. And I think 
uh, I think we're going to do a three-part series on Rosa Luxemburg's accumulation of capital. Ooh. I think that's going to happen. So maybe now by saying it, I have spoken it into existence. Uh, existential existence. In, in between existence. worlds. Indeed. The liminal yes. podcast space world. You're textualizing reparatively and making manifest to those thoughts. Is that a thing? Yes. <laughs> question mark? Yes. Question mark, yes. My favorite way to answer a question is yes with the upwards inflection implying a question mark. So, yes? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Question mark? Well, that's generally my- Somehow that that speaks to also, Emily, I think your it's not not yeah. like your particular inflection of the double negative. <laughs> I think that those well, like go together. I just think that yes and no, we think of them as two sides of a coin, but actually it's a continuum. You know? Indeed, I agree. There's like we need to there's think of much them more multiplicity. Yes, there's much more liminal space between yes and no that we don't have the language to convey. Mm-hmm. And we have to think with question marks and double negatives in I'm, order to I'm, capture reality. I'm tired of the liberal Existence. dichotomy between yes, yes and no. Yes and no. So am I. Here, here. Yeah, I say. The liberal dichotomy between yes and no. <laughs> We should have a whole episode just on the liberal dichotomy. Oh my god! I can say so much about it. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, actual yes yes to that. Yeah, that's an actual. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Well, thank you everyone for um, tuning in. We really appreciate your support. And uh, go out and read this book. It's absolutely amazing. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And thank you, John. Thank you, Emily. Thank you to you both. Thank you both of you. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, listeners Absolutely. for listening. To the hour. Emily, give a sign-off message for our listeners. Yes, thank you so much for being here and have an always already day. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is a creation of James Paglioni Jr., Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, John Command, and B. Lee Altman. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us texts you'd like us to discuss, advice, questions to answer, or dreams to analyze. We are still accepting those to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at alwaysalreadyon, like us on Facebook, and uh, why don't you leave us a review now that we're back on your podcast streaming service of your choice. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash alwaysalreadypodcast. And with that, we would like to thank our uh, many patrons, including the new patrons who are just joining us. But uh, in the Always Already Circle of Trust, which all of you should email or Patreon message us to claim your possible rewards, we would like to thank Laura, Ludwig, and Andrew, Boglan, Roddy, Diane, Ariel, Kristen, Catherine, and Matthew. In the Tumblr BFF from Canada question, we'd like to thank Alex. And the friend of the podcast here, we'd like to thank Thomas, Bill, Theory Talk, which you should listen to, Daniel, Rachel, uh, and actually that's all. And in the no reward, but still supporting us, uh, thank you to Matt, Guava, and Dr. Joe. Thank you to Bad Infinity, uh, our favorite post Toulousian, Toulousian hip hop artist, uh, for their track Post Digital uh, for our new intro music. And you also heard it towards the end of the episode, too. Uh, you can check them out on SoundCloud. We will link to it in the show description. Uh, and uh, it's from their new album, Future Commons. 
also thank you to B, whose cover of Landslide you are listening to right now. Stay tuned. Uh, as I said at the end of the episode, there will be the first of what is intended as a three-podcast monthly-ish series on Rosa Luxemburg's accumulation of capital. Till then, have an always-ready day.